highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your Son, gave me endless hope and peace. Help me now to live a life that's Church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of battle cry is love reaching out to those in darkness come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the son of god is stricken then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror for your singing.
Good morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers here. Um, you can see our cult worship in your bulletin if you want to open that, and uh, we will just uh, read it together. So open your bulletins, and we'll be reading from the bulletin there, coming from the book of Psalms, chapter 52, verse 9. I will praise you forever, O God, for what you have done. I will trust in your good name in the presence of your faithful people. Amen. Let's open our service with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We recognize your goodness, your grace, and your mercy in our lives. We thank you for the privilege it is to gather here this morning freely and uh, to worship your name, to give you the glory that you are due, and to have the fellowship with other believers. We thank you for a church family to be a part of. We ask God that you would bless this service, that you would bless us, help us to listen attentively to what it is that you have to say to us uh, through your servants and uh, we just pray that today what you see and hear from us would be good pleasing sound in Jesus name we ask this amen scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 20 sorry Acts chapter 14 Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. Now, at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to his word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconium, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was a chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. passage for us and thanks music team for starting our service with those good songs and uh, as we prepare to look into this passage let's again just bow our heads and ask God to guide our thoughts and open ourselves to him. Lord God we, uh, we just pray that as we look into this passage of scripture now as a body of believers that we would all be open to what it is you're saying to us that uh, we'd be open to you, the Holy Spirit, in us, guiding our thoughts, 
so that we can hear and understand your word and understand what it means and understand uh, how it applies to us. And Lord, I pray you'd take full control of me so that what is said would be your word coming out upon our ears. We just ask this in your name. Amen. I've probably used the uh, story of Apollo 13 for sermon illustrations more often than you care to remember. <laughs> and here I go again. <laughs> Apollo 13, as most of you will remember, was to be NASA's third moon landing. They had successfully landed men on the moon in Apollo 11 and Apollo 12. And with Apollo 13, in April of 1970, the public was almost getting bored with NASA's moon landings. What makes Apollo 13 stand out was the fact that things went very wrong when they were about three quarters of the way to the moon. An oxygen on the spaceship exploded. It knocked out a whole side, one whole side of the spaceship. The three astronauts inside the command module of the spaceship were okay for the time being, but the explosion knocked out the electrical power system that powered pretty much everything in the spaceship. The ship used hydrogen, oxygen, fuel cells uh, to produce ele the needed electrical power to run the ship, but now with the lack of oxygen, of course, those fuel cells were useless. There were three batteries aboard the command module, but they were needed for the last leg of the journey when they came back to Earth. Just before re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, the command module separated from the rest of the spaceship, and then it depended on those three batteries to supply the needed power for the command module for those last, that last little bit of guidance in entering the Earth's atmosphere correctly and to run the computer and deploy the parachutes and all that for, for splashdown. But that was four days away. <laughs> and their only option was the lunar module. That little self-contained spaceship that was used just to land on the moon. It was still attached to the command module and the rest, uh, and they can move freely from the lunar module to the command module. But the lunar module was designed to support two men for two days. And now there were three men to support for four days. So they frantically powered up the lunar module and transferred all the guidance information from the command module to the, com to the lunar module computer, trying desperately to do it before that last fuel cell on the main spaceship went dead. They didn't quite get it done before it went dead. And so they had to use some power from those three batteries to do it. So the big question now was, how do they stretch the limited power supply in the lunar module to get the astronauts back to Earth and back home? And there's one scene in the movie Apollo 13 where the staff at Mission Control in Houston were talking and trying to figure it out. And they were debating and they were arguing back and forth. There's a lot of stuff that they had to figure out and all at the same time. And one of the smartest guys at Mission Control then hushed everyone at, one, at this point I'm thinking of. And he said, power is everything. Power is everything. And everyone kind of stopped and looked at him. And he repeated, power is everything. And that's the line I've been building up to here. Power is everything. Everything the ship needed to do was dependent on electrical power. And the lunar module operating under normal circumstances would have enough electrical power to get the crew about two-thirds of the way back to Earth. Well, the result was that they had to turn off pretty much everything in the lunar module to make the power last long enough for them to get back to Earth. So they turned off almost everything. They kept the radio on so they could communicate with Earth. And the controls for the engine and thrusters, 
which didn't take much power. They were just simple, simple valves that were controlled electrically on the joystick. So when the joystick moved, a little burst of power went to open or close the valve. That's all that it was. Didn't use anything when they weren't moving the joystick. <laughs> Everything else was turned off, including the computer on the lunar module, and with it, all the guidance systems. It was all turned off. And by the time they reached Earth, the temperature inside had gone down to just barely above freezing. But they did manage to get the astronauts back to Earth alive. By turning everything off, there was enough power left in the lunar module batteries to recharge the batteries on the command module so they could fire the command module back up in time for re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere and for uh, splashdown. And it did it successfully. Power is everything. And on a mission to the moon and back, you can understand why power is everything. But as we're seeing in our series through the book of Acts, it isn't power that is everything. What we are seeing is that it is the gospel that is everything. The gospel is everything. Jesus had commanded his apostles to bring the gospel to all the people of all nations. And Acts is the story of the apostles doing that. And as we've been seeing, as we've been going through, and kind of in the middle of going through Acts, the gospel is everything. Getting the gospel message to the people is what it is all about. It is all about the gospel. The gospel is everything. We come today to chapter 14 in Acts, which was just read. Now, you may remember, we ended, the last of your time in Acts, it was two weeks ago. Uh, we left with Paul and Barnabas leaving the city of Antioch in Pisidian. That's different than the Antioch in Syria, where they had left from originally. So they left Antioch in of Pisidia or Pisidian Antioch, and they are now in the Roman province of Galatia. So, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know there's a book in your Bible called Galatians, and that book was written later on by the Apostle Paul to these churches, which he is now entering in the Roman province of Galatia. So they first preached the gospel in the city of Antioch and Pisidian. Many believed, but persecution forced them to leave, and that's where we left off at the end of chapter 13. And chapter 14 picks up the story uh, from there. So let's quickly go through the events recorded uh, here in the first 20 verses of Acts 14, the passage for us this morning, and then we'll make the application. So you can follow along as I go through. 14 verse 1, they came to the city of Iconium, and as is Paul's continuing practice, you see this everywhere Paul goes, same kind of practice, uh, he would, or yeah, they would first go to the Jewish synagogue in the city that they came to and preach the gospel, present the gospel there in the Jewish synagogue. And it says there that they spoke in such a manner, my translation says, or in such a way, or so powerfully, or whatever, different translations say different things there, but, but the way they spoke and the manner they spoke and the power with which they spoke, a great multitude believed. So obviously I think that means they spoke with conviction and power. And the power of the Holy Spirit was behind it as they spoke. And the result was many people believing in Jesus. And not only Jews, it says, but Greeks as well. But, verse 2 says, there were also those who disbelieved. And there always are. Uh, and those who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, swaying the minds of the people against the gospel and against Paul and Barnabas. But they were undeterred, and it says they kept on preaching the gospel in spite of the opposition. It says they were there a long time. How long, we aren't told, but a long time. They stayed at it as long as they could, boldly teaching the gospel to the people, relying heavily on the strength of the Holy Spirit and the Lord to do that. And it says in verse 3 that God granted, along with, with that, speaking of the gospel, he granted that signs and wonders were performed by the apostles' hands. And that served to confirm to the people that the message of the gospel being preached by Paul and Barnabas was true and was in fact really and truly from God. But the whole thing came, became more and more divisive 
in this city. There were those that believed and accepted the gospel message. There were those that didn't. And they became more and more hostile toward the apostles and those that did believe. And it got to the place where the unbelievers started a plot to have the apostles stoned. But Paul and Barnabas became aware of it and left town. And they went to the cities of Lyconia, namely Lystra or Lystra and Derby. Lyconia was, was a district in the province of Galatia. Um, historically, it seems they, at that one point before this, it was a separate political and cultural region. But at this time, by the time we come to Acts 14, it was a district within the Roman province of Galatia. And so they started preaching the gospel in Lystra and Derby. And at Lystra, something very interesting happened. There was a lame man there. Lame from birth. <clears throat> and this lame man was very interested in the gospel message being preached by Paul and was listening intently to him. And Paul noticed his intense listening and saw in his face the faith that was in him. He saw just by looking at him that he was believing. He was grasping onto the message and inwardly reaching out to Jesus and his love and forgiveness and healing that was offered. And it says, so Paul saw that he had faith to be made well. And the context here is plain that it's talking about physical healing. But the wording in the Greek would also include the whole person. Spiritual wholeness and physical wholeness altogether. The whole person. And faith to be made whole. Completely whole, physically, spiritually, mentally, every part of our being. And so Paul saw that faith in him. And Paul said to him loudly, stand up on your feet. And this guy, he had never walked in his life. He said he was lame from birth, so he had never walked in his life. But immediately he got up on his feet. And I have to wonder, how would he even know how? <laughs> That's evidence of his faith. He totally believed, and because of that belief, he acted on Paul's command, and he got up for the first time in his life. And again, it was one of those signs and wonders that God was granting to be done through the hands of Paul and Barnabas. Sounds very similar to the account back in Acts chapter 3, doesn't it, where, where Peter and John met a layman at the temple gate in Jerusalem, laying from birth as well, and God healed him. So very similar circumstances that are going on here at Lystra. A very remarkable miracle had happened. And there were lots of people around who saw it. And, and it spread very naturally. It spread throughout the city very quickly. About this miracle that had happened. And it really impressed the, the public there at Lystra. And they began concluding that the gods have become like men. And come down to us. Verse 11 says they were saying this in the Lyconian dialect. And so it, it's very possible that Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas didn't understand at first what they were saying and what they were up to. So the people, thinking that gods had become like men and come down to them, they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. Now to gain a better understanding of this, you need to understand Greek mythology to a certain extent. Some of you are... Making a bit of a comeback lately, hasn't it? In all the movies and stuff, this Greek mythology stuff. But Zeus and Hermes were Greek gods. They were part of the Greek pantheon. Uh, Twelve gods who were worshipped by the Greeks, they were called the Olympians because they lived up on Mount Olympus. Zeus and Hermes were two of them. And there was a legend that was around at that time. There was a legend that at some time before this, Zeus and Hermes had actually come down to them in the likeness of men. And so these people here now, as Paul is preaching, and they saw the miracle, they assumed that the same thing was happening again. Zeus was the chief god. He was more of a reserved, majestic kind of figure. Hermes was more of a spokesman, uh, being more outgoing and being more of the communicator. And so that's why they thought Barnabas was Zeus and Paul, the spokesman, was, was Hermes. There was a temple to Zeus just outside of Lystra. 
And so the priests of this temple started bringing out oxen and garlands and all the trappings needed for a sacrifice. They were ready to sacrifice, make a sacrifice, and worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. And when Paul and Barnabas realized what was going on, they were horrified. And so tearing their robes, they rushed out to address the crowd there, verses 15 to 17. Why, why are you doing this? We are just ordinary humans, just like you. We're here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you so that you would understand the truth and you would turn from those vain things. <laughs> vain things. This whole Greek mythology thing was in its heyday at this point. The Titans who gave rise to the Olympians. The so-called gods who had superpowers, but they were often at odds with each other. And they had offspring with each other and got jealous of each other in war. That was all part of this Greek mythology, this Greek pantheon thing. That was the Greek religion at this point. As Paul speaking, that was in its heyday. At its peak. And Paul is calling all of that vain things. This mythology was vain. It wasn't true. It was made up. It was an attempt by people to somehow connect with the supernatural. But it was way off base. So Paul is saying, we've come to tell you the truth about God and give you the gospel message so you would leave those vain things and turn to the living God. The one who, one true God who created the heaven and the earth and all things that are in them. And Paul went on to tell them more about this one true God. He says God had until this point permitted the nations and the people in them to go their own way. God created people with a free will and he allowed them to go their own way, do their own thing. He allowed them to reject him and make up gods in his place. But even though he allowed them to do that, God didn't leave them without evidence of his existence and his care. Even those who rejected him and made up other gods, he still did good to them. He gave them rains from heaven. He gave them fruitful crops. He satisfied their hearts with, good, with food and with gladness. Interesting speech Paul gave there. Well, we're going to come back to this. But verse 18, even in saying this, it says that they had some difficulty in restraining the crowd and stopping them from offering the sacrifices to them. And as you go on there, you see, consistent with the pattern, the Jews that opposed the gospel, they came from Iconium, they stirred up the crowds against Paul and Barnabas and won over the multitude. I look at that, that's a head shaker to me. <laughs> People can go from worshiping you at one point and within short order, totally, totally turn on you. So it says they stoned Paul. Dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. But it says a believer stood around him and in time Paul revived and got up. Went back to the city. Now whether that revival was, was miraculous or not, we're not told. Paul must have been in pretty bad shape if he was left for dead. He must, well, certainly would have been unconscious with the stoning, probably a concussion or something happened. I, I don't know, I'm speculating, but most certainly he would have been unconscious if they thought he was dead. And I'm sure the believers that were around him were praying for Paul, uh, and in time it says as he stood up and went back into the city. And then verse 20 concludes that by telling us that the next day Paul and Barnabas went on to the city of Derby. So that's the story up to the end of verse 20. So what can we learn from this that is applicable for us today? Let's look into it. It's about the gospel. The gospel message and the nature of the gospel. We need to have a good understanding of the gospel and a study of the truths that come out of the story here in these 20 verses will help us understand better the nature of the gospel. So three things that I saw here that I'd like to bring out to you the nature of the gospel. Number one, the gospel is foundational. The gospel is foundational. And I'm looking here at verses 14 to 17. What happened here and Paul's response to it, it tells us something important. It tells us that the gospel is foundational. Let me explain what I mean. This crowd here at Lystra 
steeped as they were in Greek religion, and the worship of these gods of Greek mythology were only too ready to believe when they saw the miracle of the lame man walking, they were only too ready to believe that Paul and Barnabas were actually Zeus and Hermes who had become like men and come to pay them a visitation. And they actually started taking steps to worship them by sacrificing some oxen to them. And I find Paul's response to this situation interesting and what he says to them is very insightful. We are not gods. We are humans just like you. We've come here to preach the gospel to you. Catch that? We, human beings with the same nature as you, came here to preach the gospel to you. Why? In order that you should turn from these vain things. What vain things? The vain things of worshiping these made up, these products of nothing but imagination, these so-called gods of Greek mythology. Those vain things. <laughs> totally vain things. Things of no truth or substance or value. Paul and Barnabas were not gods. They were here to preach the gospel to them so they would turn from those vain things. Turn to what? Turn to a living God. The one true God who is real, who is living. Turn away from these made-up gods who only exist in your imagination and turn to the living God, the one and only God in existence who is eternally living. How should they know that their gods are nothing but imagination while the God of the gospel that Paul and Bonners are preaching is real and living? Because the living God is the one who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's a pretty inclusive statement, isn't it? God, that's, that is everything. God made everything. He's the one who created it all. There's no record of the Greeks believing that the Olympians or the Titans created anything. They just took over what was there in their thinking. But this God, the real living God, he's the one that created everything. And then Paul goes on. This one true living God, he has let the nations go their own way to reject him, start making up their own God. But even in doing that, God has made his existence pretty obvious to anyone and everyone. Now open their eyes and look and see. All the blessings of life for everyone, even for those who reject him, God has still given them all those blessings, rain, crops, food, joy, gladness. God has always made his presence known. So what Paul and Barnabas were preaching here shouldn't have been a big surprise. They should have realized fairly quickly upon hearing the gospel message that it had the ring of truth to it. And as we've seen, many did believe. But many refused to believe. So all of that is included in the word gospel. We have come to preach the gospel to you. That's all included. They preached the gospel to them so they would turn from these vain things to the living God who created all things and who longs to bless and do good for people. And what we see from that is that the gospel is foundational. It is the foundation to a people turning from vain things to the one and only living God. The gospel is foundational for that to happen. For that to happen, the gospel must be presented and then accepted. But it is the gospel that's a foundational to a turning away from vain things to a living God. And I looked at that and I realized, friends, we live in a society that is totally entangled in vain things. People are enamored and blinded by vain things. Just like the people here at Lystra. And that causes them to believe and espouse things that are just plain ridiculous. 
and it seems especially in our world, in our society, in our nation, that people in positions of influence and leadership are believing and espousing these vain things and are pushing them on our society. We're horrified, and rightly so, by what's coming from our governments and what's being taught in our schools and what's being pushed in our schools. Vain things. So what's the answer? Our first reaction is usually to fight for change of laws and policies and, and so on. And, and there's probably a place for that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. But in doing that, we're dealing with symptoms. With things that are superficial to the real issue. The only way to really help people to turn from vain things to a living God is preaching of the gospel. The gospel is the answer. Because only Jesus Christ can change a life. Only Jesus Christ can change a heart. And renew a person's mind. And change their way of thinking. Only Jesus can instill in a person the correct moral values. And he will do that as people hear the gospel, believe, accept it, and turn their lives to Christ. Society can only really be changed fundamentally as the hearts of the people within that society are changed. Only Jesus can do that. And he does it through the preaching of the gospel. So that's the first thing we see here about the nature of the gospel. It is foundational. It is absolutely necessary to a society turning from vain things to the living God. The gospel is foundational. Secondly, the gospel is divisive. The gospel is divisive. Now that doesn't sound good. But, you know, everything already said is true. But by its very nature, the gospel is and has been and will continue to be divisive. And we've seen that right through our study of the book of Acts. When the gospel is presented, there are always those that accept and there are always those that reject. And some of those who reject the gospel become very hostile towards the gospel. And decide that it needs to be stopped at all costs. It needs to be cancelled. And they will make every attempt to stir up others against the gospel. And they will have some success in doing that. That's been the story of the book of Acts right from the beginning. And it's a story here. It will be the story right to the end of the book of Acts. It has been the story ever since. It is the story today. Why is that? Why is the gospel divisive? Like this. It isn't because the gospel's wrong. The gospel is absolute truth. And usually people conclude that if something is divisive, it's wrong. But that is not accurate. The gospel message is perfectly true and perfectly right, and it is still divisive. The problem is that we as humans are sinful. That's the problem. We have that sin nature in us. We, at the core of the sin nature that is in us, we have a tremendous amount of pride and selfishness. That's the core of the... Well, among other things. But that, that is at the core of the sin nature. This pride and this selfishness. That pride and selfishness really resents anything that points out our sinfulness. And the idea that we are sinful and need a Savior. And the idea of having to depend on a Savior for salvation. That cuts our pride deeply. The idea of submitting to God to live our lives the way God wants us to really cuts into our pride. We want to run our lives and live our lives the way we want to. We don't want to submit to anyone. But the gospel does all of that. The gospel makes clear our sinfulness. It lays that bare. It lays our sinfulness bare, open. And that's never pleasant. It presents us with a savior that we need. And we must accept if we want to be able to turn from these vain things. And that's humiliating to our pride. So it cuts deeply against the core of that sinful nature within us. 
So the bottom line is that some who reject the gospel will do so with resentment because it tells the truth which they don't want to believe or accept. So they become hostile and try to shut it down. They try to stop the spread of the gospel and persecute the preachers of the gospel. Not because it's wrong, but because of that sinful resentment within them. So we need to be aware of this. And I think we are. Um, By its very nature, the gospel is divisive. It is absolute truth, but because of that, it points out sin and wrong, and there will be those who resent that and will become hostile toward it. So it will stir up people against us. And we're living today in a society that is a result of the gospel being stifled in many ways. People actively working to counteract the truth of the gospel And we're seeing in our society that happening and the results of that happening. That's at the core of why our society is as messed up as it is. Because of the gospel message being stifled. Now for more and more with the past of each generation. But with each generation we see it getting worse. But that should not stop us from spreading the gospel. And preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel. In fact, we dare not stop if we care at all about people and love people. But know that by its very nature, it is divisive. Some will reject and will do so with resentment and hostility and try to shut us down and maybe persecute us. Jesus told us to expect that to happen. So we need to know that it will happen and expect it. But we need to keep on sharing the gospel anyway. Because that is what our world so desperately needs. And we know that in doing that, there will be some who will accept it. And will turn their hearts and lives to Jesus. Then thirdly and finally, God uses his servants to spread and explain the gospel. God uses his servants to spread and explain the gospel. Again, uh, looking here at verse 15. Paul, in reacting to the horror, or in horror to the crowd, deifying them and worshiping them, said that they came to preach the gospel to them so they would turn from these vain things to a living God. This foundational, life-altering gospel is spread by God's servants telling people about it. That's the only way it's spread. That's why Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people, to all nations. That's why the Holy Spirit told the church at Antioch back in Acts 13 to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the task of taking the gospel message to the Gentile world. That is the method God has chosen to bring the gospel to the people of this world. That's how it spread by his disciples, which is us as Christians, spreading the gospel to those in our world and explaining it to them. You know, sometimes I sit and think God couldn't you have found a more effective way to do this <laughs> seems like this method's not working very well <laughs> but this is the method he has chosen and if we were all knowing like God we would likely be able to see that this is the most effective way to do it that by, very, by its very nature, the gospel needs to be spread and explained by God's servants, us as Christians, to those who need to hear it. We are the ones to bring the gospel to the world. Now, of course, no one Christian can do that. But we can bring the gospel to the people in our world. And as we all do that, as Christians all over the world do that, collectively we can bring the gospel to the entire world. Who are the people in your world? Might be a good exercise. In fact, I think I'll encourage you to do that in the days, weeks to come, maybe over the summer holidays. Think about this. Who are the people in your world? Take some time to make a list. I, I, I started doing that a while back, and it's not as easy as it first sounds, but who are the people in your world? People that you come in contact with quite regularly and they seem to be just in your life 
God, for whatever reason, has brought these people into your life. Who are those people? Make a list. Write down and make, sit down and make a list of those people. And then from that, start praying for these people and relating to them and interacting with them in a manner that will share the gospel with them and explain the gospel to them. By its very nature, the gospel is spread and explained by God's servants, by us as Christians. It's the only way. The nature of the gospel. So let's do that. So therefore, we see from this passage the truths that give us a greater understanding of the nature of the gospel. There's a lot more that could be said, obviously, but that's what comes out of this passage here. Truths that explain the nature of the gospel. Number one, the gospel is foundational. Number two, the gospel is divisive. And number three, the gospel is spread by us as Christians. Spreading it and explaining it. I hope we all understand our in tune with these truths every human on the planet desperately needs the gospel every society needs to turn from vain things to a living God the gospel is foundational to that yeah we need to be aware that it's divisive not because it's wrong quite the opposite it's because it's true <laughs> and for that reason there will be those who resent it and then we need to understand the only way it's going to be spread is as we as Christians do it and explain it. That I trust is God's word to us this morning. Let's just take our time of silence again and just, yeah, just as we do every Sunday, just think about what, what's the word for me here personally this morning? What is God saying to me? personally. I'll give you a few moments.
singing. 